There's money coming. Take a breath and figure out what it is you want for your community for the next 50 years, because that's what you're going to be able to get. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today I'm speaking with Peggy Schaefer from one of my favorite states, don't tell anyone, uh, from Maine, the Executive Director of the Connect Maine Authority, in fact. Welcome back to the show, Peggy. Thanks for inviting me. It's uh, great to be here. Yes. And I've, I have to say that, um, you know, obviously my organization has deep roots in in Maine, uh, in the Portland area particularly. But uh, Maine has been one of my favorite states for broadband, too. The Maine Broadband Coalition that you've been involved with um, historically that you still are involved with. But uh, so many great folks, um, so many great partnerships, um, really interesting approaches throughout the state. Um, let me just start with a general question. You've also been active in helping to shape the broadband piece of the infrastructure bill. How are you feeling right now? Right now, now that that language is, is sort of written in, in maybe like a kind of quickly curing concrete. I think it's a huge win. I really do. And here's here's why. I mean, I think there's there are holes, right? There are always going to be holes in federal legislation. But to me, the huge win is the significant shift from moving away from federally run programs to state run programs. Because, you know, I'm a huge believer that the states are the people doing this work. It's really this is an on the ground street by street battle and the states are the people doing this work. And so um, to be able to uh, put the money through state programs who best know the issues, best know the, the constituencies and the providers, I think is a huge, huge step for the federal government. I just, I think it's, it's a significant shift away from them to the actual people who do the work, which is I think really important. It's pretty broad ranging. There's money in there for, um, digital equity. There's money in there for tribes. There's money in there for affordability. Um, there's money in there for middle mile. While it could, of course, always be better, this is really good. This is really good. And it's really, um, it sets a path for future action that I think is really critical, right? I mean, we have, we have to deliver. We have to deliver on this. Um, I know we can, but we have to deliver on this. But um, once we do that, it lays a path that says, you know, this is how we should do things from here on in. I really like that. I, I agree with your assessment. I, I think I'm not um, as overly positive in in all the ways. I mean, I have some... Um, some concerns and disappointments, obviously. I mean, the, the Biden administration got our hopes up um, in ways that, you know, if you asked me in February, is the Biden administration going to prioritize municipal and cooperative networks? I probably would have said, eh, probably not. Uh, but then he said he was. <laughs> so, But here's what I would say about that, right? So we do, there are states who, for a lot, mostly political reasons, have those bans, right? They do. Mm -hmm. This does allow for states that don't have those bans to do those kinds of activities, right? right? Yes. So it puts... In states that don't have those bans, so again, it puts us on an equal footing, puts municipalities and other projects on an equal footing, um, because it, it, so it's going to allow expansion in states where, where there aren't the municipal bans. But the other thing it will do, I think it will put pressure on those states that have those bans to remove them. Yeah. I mean, that's a long-term strategy, but right. 
No, I agree. And I, and that's the thing is that this is my version. This is, this is good for multiple reasons to give the money to the States. One is that uh, I've said this in multiple times. Um, if the States screw this up, there will be political accountability. I believe if the FCC got all the money and they screwed it up, I don't think there would be very much accountability. So, so this sets us up for longer term. Now I want to come back to the States, um, in one way, but I'm going to go down a different path. I was trying to figure out which path to go down. So the first is, for states that do screw this up, let's say that they, they squander this money. They give it to you know, AT&T or Lumen or Frontier or something and just not very much gets done. This, this $42 billion for infrastructure more or less should be the final amounts that, if spent correctly, would solve nearly everyone's unconnected problem, the people who have no infrastructure near them in rural areas. So if North Carolina or Idaho screw this up, should they have future federal funds available to them or should the federal government say, you know what, now you're paying for it if for anyone that's not connected past this? That's a good question. I think um, there needs to be some level of accountability on the states for a couple things, right? We need to make sure whoever we give the money to builds what they say they're going to build. So that's uh-huh. an accountability. I mean, the Fed's got a lot of accountability on that, but we're going to need that too. I, I actually, I'm not sure what the answer is to that. Um, mm-hmm. Because I know that in, in our state, we, we guess, and it is a guess, because you know the data on all this stuff is really bad. But so we guess our hole is $600 million. It's probably a little higher than that. If we're going to achieve, you know, 100 over 100, it's probably a lot higher than that because the 600 million is really based on a back of the envelope guess of where um, cable is. And so if we're going to build 100 over 100, which is what our current state standard is, that number is going to be bigger than that. And so this potential 300 to 400 million coming to our state, when you add in potential community funds and potential provider funds, should get us to, you know, probably 700 million. That should solve most of our problems, right? But there will be a hole left. And so the question is for those states who maybe don't do this right, maybe give it to a provider and they're not as accountable as they should be, or they don't build what they're supposed to be, how to separate out where they provided funding that didn't work and where there's where they couldn't provide funding because for whatever reason, mm-hmm. um, still need additional funding to get there. So I think there needs to be some level of sort of corrective action. I will say that, um, you know, I'm on the state broadband leaders network, and there are more and more and more states now actively and aggressively engaged in this. Um, it is a really supportive group of directors who have many, many conversations with each other outside of the NTIA structure about how to do this. We're constantly passing information back and forth. We're stealing information from people's Facebook, from their Facebook Mm -hmm. pages, from their, you know, we cut and paste all, everybody's web pages are cut and paste all over the place because there's lots of good information out there and we're sharing and trying to learn from each other. Um, Every state is very different in terms of their political uh, status of where they are. And that's true about where their office is too, right? Some are located in the governor's office, which has a little less stability. Some are located in economic development offices with a little more. So, you know, I think that there needs to be some, there needs to be good accountability, but you need to be flexible enough to understand sort of the politics of what's going on in the state. That's not really an answer to your question. No, that's, uh, I think that is a very good response in terms of we don't know yet. And frankly, materials costs keep going up. This money's not going to go as far as we thought it would. So there's going to be some challenges along the way. 
Maine is one of the higher cost states to build in. Um, you know, uh, obviously, anytime you have to go underground is incredibly difficult. Even setting poles in many places is much more expensive than in other places. Your uh, folks that that are are out there are quite a ways out there, <laughs> with uh, um, so much of the population being close to the coastline, but the ones who aren't often deep into forests. Um, do you have a sense of whether you're going to be able to start dealing with the underserved or do you think almost all this money will be going to the unserved uh, folks? A lot of that depends on the federal guidelines, right? How the feds, how whoever ends up doing this, I think NTA ends up interpreting the federal priorities, which are, you know, the top one's 25.3, the next one's 100 over 20. I think that we're going to get to some 100 over 20. I am hopeful that the money is flexible enough that we can begin looking at areas of the state that are, you know, dense, you know, mm-hmm. in for Maine, and that are low income. Um, you know, we have housing sections in in Lewiston, for instance, and Portland and South Portland um, that don't have very good service, but we can't reach there because they technically have service. I am really hopeful that we can use some of this money to look at what other towns, what other states are doing, like the New York City mesh thing and the Detroit mesh thing. If there's ways that we can do that, because for all of this money, it's really important that we step back. Our concern is, should be, that people need to have access to broadband. They need to know how to use it. They need to know how they need to have a device. They need to be able to afford it. And they need to have something running by their house they can connect to, right? And something running by their house, this pays for. And it pays for, to some extent, the affordability to a piece and how to use it to a small piece. But as we build these networks with this money, it's really important that we step back and look at the very basics of where those costs start. So do they start with middle mile? In Maine, we have essentially one connection to Boston, right? That's it. And so how do we as a state think about if we're going to build this infrastructure to make sure it's affordable by the time it gets to the customer end? So do we need more peering in the state? Do we need more middle mile? Who should own that middle mile? You know, how do we keep those costs low so when we get to the end, the, the service is affordable? Um, and the same thing is true, I think, with these sort of mesh networks. I think that, the, to me, the exciting piece about like the New York and the Detroit and the other ones are, um, A, they're having citizens build it. So you're getting workforce and you're getting skills, you're getting community engagement, all of that stuff. But the other thing is once you build it, the people own it. And so you don't have that constant you don't need that constant emergency broadband benefit to help pay for it because it can be a lower cost because we own the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a really important piece. And, you know, when we talk to towns about municipal broadband, that's one of the conversations that we try to have. You need to look at affordability in your town, figure out how many people are, are low income. And there's always a ton. Um, and then figure out how you're going to make sure that there is universal access here. And you owning the infrastructure helps that conversation. So, um, that's my hope is that this money isn't just, you know, let's get something to the last mile so everybody gets connected. It really takes a moment and steps back and looks at the structures that we need to make sure that this is an affordable product by the time it gets to that last mile. Well, that's terrific. Uh, I want to talk more about what you're doing in Maine. Um, last year, there was a referendum in which people voted to to um, to put. I think it was fifteen million dollars, was it, uh, toward yeah. uh, toward broadband projects? How how is that moving forward? So we have done our first round of funding. Connect Maine was created in two thousand and seven, um, and we've had a small amount of funding every year. It's basically 
based an assessment based on a landline. So it's a decreasing revenue stream. And so we put out maybe, you know, somewhere between 750 and a million dollars a year in, in, in grants. So over the 12 year history, probably 12 million bucks since last year, up until now, up until this fall, fall 2021, we're going to have put out almost $22 million in grants. So twice of what we have put out over the last four years. Some of that we did, we did a small bit of COVID money, CARES Act. In this fall, we did about $6 million of that. We got that out the door in two weeks. Um, and networks that were built by December. Um, so unlike you know USDA, who's still building networks. Mm-hmm. And then we have this, this broadband bond that passed last summer. We put out, they were doing two rounds of applications for that. The first round was this spring. And we awarded about $8.6 million to... I think seven providers to cover about 9,000 locations. Um, In that we funded three municipal projects. Some of them were what we call provider expansion. So it really, it wasn't like a universal build. It was like, I want to take my footprint and bring it out here. Those projects are mostly under contract and get going. We are um, always evolving, right? All this process is evolving. And so we are looking at our grant processes for the next round learning what we did from this round. Um, and we're gonna make, be making some adjustments. Some of that is because we um, finally brought on smart people to run, help, run, help us run this. We hired Tilson Technologies and Vetro Fiber to help us both with the design and more importantly, the mapping. Um, and we're gonna use that information to improve our processes going forward, um, which will allow us to, to make some uh, significant process changes to help applicants make it a little easier for towns to apply. Let us look at the information a little differently so that we um, can look at really what we're, what, what the cost is per pass and what we're, we're paying for um, versus just what is the project costs. And so that might help. That's going to help us make, I think, better decisions um, about how to spend this money to reach the most people. So it's a lot of work. It's all very exciting. Um, and it's constantly moving, which, you know, I got to say, um, the industry and communities are like, why are you changing this all the time? And it's because <laughs> first off, this technology is changing, right? Not, not the technology of how to bring you service, but the technology of understanding who has service and who doesn't is changing all the time. And so we're taking advantage of that to constantly refine our process. It's not huge, but it is, there's significant refinement that that's important. Well, no, and that's really good because what you're doing is, I mean, you're talking about, you know, you learned a lot, I'm sure, through those like um, 750000 to a million dollars per year. Now you've gone up by a, a factor of 10 and you're going to learn a lot. And soon you're going to have another 10x jump here, whether that's the money from the uh, the 10 billion uh, from the Treasury Department funds, which we hope we'll hear from in the fall. I mean, I think there's a sense that many of us had that that, that program was slow rolled as they were waiting to see if it was going to be clawed back. And now we don't think it's going to be clawed back. I, you know, I was very worried about that. I know that you had some concerns about yes. that. <laughs> so that program will hopefully be going forward soon. And then as soon as you're in the middle of that is when you'll start to get this other money from this infrastructure bill if it goes through as well. So it'll be really good to be a a pro, you know, and a seasoned pro by the time that comes out. Right. I mean, so we're laying a a path based on $15 million, which was huge last summer, right? Huge. Yes. This summer, we're looking at 300 to $400 million in the next couple of years, which is mind blowingly huge. And that's, I mean, you hear this conversation on a national level and we're trying to have it on the state level too, which is, 
we need to shift our mindset from one of scarcity, which is can we build for the cheapest to serve the most people, to one of abundance, which is what is it people need to make this service work for them for 50 or 40 years? We don't want to go back and build this infrastructure then. How do we do it Mm -hmm. right now? And how do we know how to do it right now? And that's the piece I think that abundance allows us to do, and it's it is a significant mind shift. I have this conversation with all the pe- all the time with people, and they're like, "Well, what about?" And I'm like, "Stop, stop thinking that way. Right. <laughs> there's money coming. Don't be thinking about oh, it's no. There's money coming. There's money from the American Rescue Plan that your town has have and your county has, which can help. There's money the state has from that. There's the treasury money. There's there's money coming. Take a breath." and figure out what it is you want for your community for the next 50 years, because that's what you're going to be able to get. That's, uh, I think that's very good advice. And one of the things I found interesting is that this money that's coming becoming available, uh, you're, presumably Maine will have you distribute it. And um, communities, if they want to put in their own projects, will have to put up 25% at least uh, and as a match. And they can use the American Rescue Plan dollars that are available to them. And so it's important not that they spend that money immediately, but to make sure that they are reserving uh, an appropriate amount um, if they don't want to have to um, you know, find their, within their own tax revenue uh, what they're going to use for that match. Yeah, I also think it's really important for... Um... This is one of the things that we, we haven't gotten to yet, but we want to, which is essentially what I, I it's, it's more complicated than this, but I essentially say it's a spreadsheet, right? If you know what your cost is and you know what your take rate is and you know what your, you can figure this out so you can look at if, what is the revenue stream that you're going to get from this service and what is the whole when you're done, right? So if you have a revenue stream that's going to pay for maybe 50% of the bill, then your whole is 50% of the bill. So then you're not, you're not figuring out how to find 100%. You're figuring out how to find 50%. And you know how much of that is, is um, how much of that can be a loan, how much of it can be a grant. And, and that helps all of us spend this money further, right? When we can figure out how to use the potential revenue stream that does come in, because people pay every month from these systems to help build that system. And for towns who want to build their own network, um, they have much greater capacity of this because they can borrow for 20 or 30 years. So that really stretches out that payment. And they can do some of it if they want to on their tax base, or they can also do it with a revenue bond. Um, And all of that sort of allows for communities to, to think about all right, if we're going to pay this much chunk and our our community can afford this much, here's the piece that's left. There's a small piece that's left here. And what are the, what are the components of that piece? So is it provider money? Is it uh, federal money? Is it state money? And it really helps them really think better about, um, I think everybody gets stuck on, oh my God, this is so expensive. And it's, it's not, it's not, you know, I'm on our town budget committee. We pave about three miles of road a year, and it's $400,000. Mm-hmm. You know, broadband in Maine is about thirty dollars or $35,000 a mile. So it's cheaper than paving the roads. Well, yeah, I, I look back at the, uh, the the bridge that was replaced, oh, must be 10 years ago, eight years ago, something like that, um, up or on the way on the highway that goes right along the The, the Corona Bridge. Yes, yeah, the one yeah. that's beautiful now, that amazing suspension bridge. It, it was bridge. a gorgeous, we called it the singing bridge before because it used to sing in, in the, you know. Okay. <laughs> I remember driving over that when it was either being painted or is there was some construction on it, and it was. Let's just say it wasn't the same um, visual uh, 
um, um, uh, aesthetic beauty on the landscape that the that the new Verona Bridge is. Um, but I can't imagine how much that must have cost. I think I know. I think it was seventy or eighty million dollars, and that was just one of our. There, there are bridges that connect. That bridge connects an island, mm-hmm. um, and is Route One goes across it, or Route Three, I think it is. Anyways, um, it's a major bridge, and when those go, you got to fix them right then. And that, so that bridge went before it's what we thought was before. We thought they were seventy years, and it wasn't seventy years, less than that. But it was, mm-hmm. I think, it was seventy or eighty million dollars that we had to come up with in a summer to pay for that. Right, and that's is critical infrastructure, and uh, at the same time, I mean, in a in a low density state, like the bridge isn't. It's not. It's not like a, a bridge in New York City in terms of the amount yeah. of volume that it carries. But yeah, these things are. We we're used to paying for bridges and roads and things like that, and um, and with the particularly when you do it right, as you're focused on when you're building this fiber infrastructure that has this very long life and low operating costs, um, then making sure you get it done right means that we're not going to be suddenly, you know, stuck when uh, when we have a, a we need a forklift upgrade for a wireless system, for instance. There's there's definitely roles for wireless and uh, less so in New England and often than in many other cases in part for a variety of local reasons but um, but yeah I just I think it's really important to like you're saying to get this right I mean right now if you decide if you're like you know we just got to get started immediately we're gonna start ordering our gear well you're still gonna have eighteen months or two years while you're waiting to get it so so you know don't 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 skimp on the planning let's make sure we're we're getting it done right that usually it that's a message we tried to give when the American Rescue Plan came out everybody's like, oh my God, spend it right now. It's like, you don't, you don't. You have until the 20, you have until 2024 to decide what you're going to do. And then you have until 2026 to build. You have plenty of time. Breathe, plan, stay focused. Don't panic. Yes. And um, and Maine has uh, so many local companies and even it looks like Consolidated is now much more willing to partner in interesting ways. So there's a lot of good partners to, to tap into. Yeah. No, we are we are very fortunate in that we have a very good um, ISP community, um, and the shift that Consolidated has made in the last six to nine months is significant, right? So they had a project that they were going to do on Stonington, which is a bridge island. It's off a of bridge island. It's a bridge island off a of bridge island off a of bridge island. Um, another one of those critical bridges, the Deer Isle Bridge, um, and they were going to do DSL there. Um, and the town was happy because they had nothing, right? The town was happy and upgraded their DSL. They were happy. And Stonington went back, they went back to, CCI went back to Stonington in the spring and said, you know what? We're not going to do SDSL anymore. We're going to bring fiber. And it's like, wow. Mm-hmm. And that's a significant shift. And because there are a, a huge footprint in the state, it, it's a significant opportunity for us. Yes, and then they have the interesting partnerships with public ownership in New Hampshire, and and I don't want to I don't want to say anything negative about them. It's wonderful that, that CCI is doing this. Um, many of the incumbent uh, telephone companies are not. Uh, if I'm living in Maine, though, I'm still looking for one of those local um, nimble companies to to partner with that you have so many of as well. They're doing the the project they did in in, in New Hampshire. They're doing the exact same model on an island, a Long Island, off the coast of uh, Maine, uh, off the coast of Portland. Uh, this year, we funded part of that project, okay. um, and they're going to do the exact same thing. Um, where there's a the town does a revenue bond, our grant helps with that revenue bond. CCI pays essentially for the drops, and uh, when the revenue bond is done, um, the town will own that infrastructure. That's wonderful. This what progress we've made. <laughs> you know, for all the the problems and challenges we still have, things are so much brighter now than they were uh, five six years ago. They are no, they are. It's it's a significant. 
It's a very different conversation. When I first started doing this work with the Maine Broadband Coalition, this is a very different conversation. There's much more community voices involved, which I think is really important because this, two, two reasons. First off, the customers are taxpayers and the rate payers. So they're actually, they're the ones who pay for all this stuff, right? So having their voice in this is really important. Um, and, you know, that's, I think it's important, not just for any potential for municipal broadband. It's also important around the digital literacy and digital inclusion. And it also gives the um, providers an opportunity to say, oh, wait, there is a market here. I can come into that town and I know I'm going to get a high enough take rate that I know I can build and I can pay it back. So those community conversations are really, really important. And I think the knowledge people are gaining about how this infrastructure can benefit them is only more and more helpful as we go forward. Because we don't know what the internet is going to bring us. We don't, right? Right. But who would ever guess that the largest hotel chain in the in the in the world, Airbnb, doesn't actually own anything, right? And that's because of the internet. So that's the kind of innovation that can happen over this. And it's really important that everybody has access to that resource. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today. Anytime. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle. Licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.